0: Hey, neighbors. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I am Gordon. How are you doing today, Gordon?
1: I'm doing better than expected.
0: That's an excellent thing.
1: So today, Gordon,
0: you, you think that we should talk a little bit about this thing called computational photography.
1: Well, I don't know if we should talk about it, but I do know it's something that I keep hearing about, and I realized I don't actually know very much about, so...
0: Well, I think that's fair. I also uh, would agree that it's a topic of discussion, and certainly in having re- reviewing the great minds on the internet, there are a great many definitions... Mm-hmm. for what it is, and a lot of speculation about how it's, you know, the uh, the savior of all mankind or the latest sign of the apocalypse. There doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground here. So I think it's a good conversation. We'll identify what it is, the reality of it, and the perception, where it gets used, what are the implications of using this, and then where's the next phase going to come from? Does that sound
1: reasonable? It should, mm-hmm. since you wrote it. Um, yeah, that's very reasonable. Okay. Heaven, heaven knows I'm a reasonable person. That is... That would be Shakespeare too. That would be Shakespeare too.
0: From your perspective, what is
1: computational photography? Well, maybe more importantly, it's what it isn't. Uh, when we start talking about computational photography, or what's otherwise referred to as AI, it raises images of... Dystonic cyborgs armed with cell phones doing things in the background to mess up your photography.
0: Hey, I've been downtown. I've seen them.
1: <laughs> but more realistically, uh, from a very thoughtful article I came across, it's it's a system whereby computers and processors okay. and algorithms uh, are used to produce the final image that you see, or modify the image that you took to give you an image that is perceived to be better.
0: Okay, I think that's fair. Technologically, the definition is pretty simple. We historically, as photographers, have considered photography to be an optical process. Mm -hmm. There's light and it comes through a lens and that lens focuses those light rays someplace, film, sensor, in a manner such that we can record that image. And that's what we've always done. But computational photography is not that at all. It's not optical. It's done in microprocessors and algorithms and memories. So the context of the making of the photograph is that it is not made optically. It's made by these microprocessors and these processing techniques that are basically doing digital computation. They take the data that's come in, and then they manipulate it before the file is even created. Now, I understand that that's not the only way that one can look at it. But fundamentally, computational photography means the image is created by a computer. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand there's more to, the, more to it than that. It, it does more. But I think that the idea is that's a sea change from where we've been. Right. Because, well, for some of us anyway. We think of photography as a scene, lens, mind, finish. Yes. And what we see is actually what we get. Whereas in computational photography, that's not true. What we get is whatever the process made. And philosophically, there's actually some real thought about this because you alluded to the concept of AI. There's already been discussion that a photograph made by AI cannot be copyrighted. Because okay. it's not a human. Okay. That's currently actually a subject before the U.S. courts. I don't know what that means in the long run. I really don't. But I think it's something that we need to think about. So if it is is what we say it is, from the perspective of the user, what are they getting, really? Are they getting true AI? I hope not. <laughs> because the cyborgs will not be carrying smartphones. <laughs> They will have decided that humans are a blight. They'll do whatever it is that they do, and they're not going to look like Terminators because that's highly inefficient (laughs) body design.
1: Maybe, is it machine learning instead? That, I think, seems to be the consensus of the opinion that AI is used because it's so much simpler to say. Um, From our exposure to all the science fiction and... Books and comics, Uh, we sort of have an impression of AI. Uh, It's easier to say and it's so much more catchy than trying to define what it actually is. But machine learning is probably better. But again, it's not the machine that is doing the learning, it is the background system that the machine has been told to reference the images two, which is the actual learnt process. So
0: if I hear you correctly, it's not actually learning. It's making, the computer is making decisions based on a set of contextual inquiries in some deep matrix form. If this, then do this. And if this, then do this. Let's call it a very, a very computationally intensive three-dimensional case statement. Right. So it's not really learning anything, but it's using a very complex set of criteria to produce that context of a pleasing image. Right. But who decides what's pleasing?
1: Uh, whoever wrote the software
0: in the first place. So the presumption would then be that that person or persons spent time with actual image makers, to ask them and to learn from them what they see as being a pleasing photograph?
1: Well, I think it goes beyond that. I I think uh, you had mentioned quite a while ago when we talked about just the whole concept of using one of the semi-automatic modes, your automatic, your aperture priority or your shutter priority, uh, and giving you focus or exposure readings. that 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 by itself, whenever that came into effect, was already a degree of computational because they were referencing billions of images with the algorithms founded on those images to produce this concept of how dark should dark be, how light should lights be, how greys should greys be. And it works towards... Utilizing those algorithms based on those images to give you the image it thinks you want. Okay, so
0: fundamentally
1: then, it is not dissimilar
0: from what the original program modes were designed to do. They were based, how the program modes worked, were based on an analysis of literally billions of photographs. Right. Successful photographs. Yep. And then those programs were built to say... Here is where things should fall, kind of where the colors should be based on the light and do all that kind of things. But this is taking it to a greater level, whereas the program mode would try to get all the data as it is, where what we're talking about is to take that data only as an input source before it creates, it generates the output. Right, And the output may not be an exact representation of what it saw or even close to it.
1: Right. But it seems to be, it's it's not what you saw, but it changes it in ways that you actually think you saw that. Because when you see the image, you say, oh, this is very nice. I'm I'm getting really good at this photography thing.
0: Okay. So I, I, I accept that. We know that optical memory, like auditory memory, is utter garbage. Right. That's, that's why in, in law enforcement, witness statements are not really well trusted. Right. You know, it was a short, fat bald man with blonde hair. Right. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, that's about right.
0: Um, so, okay. So I accept then that the viewer will see not what was there, but what they believed was there. Right. Okay. Exactly. So that explains to us what happens. In the process of image manufacture, yes, in the camera, yes, and I think we're going to talk about whether that exists in all cameras because I don't think it does. Correct. But where are other places where this manufacturing process takes on? Is it just in the camera?
1: No, no. Um, it it extends to well the 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 process the time of capture. It does things in the context of your digital image management, and it's. To a bigger extent now, I believe, it does it in the context of everything that we do in post-processing.
0: So there are three, can we call them constituents? Sure. That can leverage this capability. Yes. And is it safe to say that some folks never get past the first one? Most don't get past the first one. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, That seems reasonable to me, given the joy and success that folks have with their smartphones. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's safe to say that the greatest level of implementation of this kind of technology is at the smartphone level? Oh, absolutely.
1: Okay. Absolutely.
0: So if we think about it in that context, because that's where most photographs or pictures or you want to go run down the semantic highway. Image. Images are built See. numerically today. Mm-hmm. Is on a smartphone. Yep. Far more than on what we would think of as a more traditional camera. Yep. So okay, so that is where this computational stuff happens, and it's much more sophisticated than what a traditional photographer would think of as program mode or aperture preferred or the kind of things that photographers like to fight about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like you want to start a bar fight? <laughs> aperture priority is better than shutter priority. Right. And Shout it out loud and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> So you don't get hit by a chair. So if it's, let's talk about the cell phone. Why does it make sense on the cell phone or the camera phone or whatever they call them this week? The,
1: uh, and this uh, hadn't registered with me, I have to admit, but I always knew, and I've heard you talk often about the sensors in a cell phone being minuscule uh, and therefore prone to creating images that are very noisy Uh, the lenses are slow minuscule lenses as well Um, they're slow and you would expect that what comes out of that camera is going to be inferior okay that's not what we see we that's certainly
0: not the experience that people perceive right they don't they think that those little cameras actually do fine focus. yep, they don't. yep, but they do leverage depth of field very well. yep. Uh, to your point, it's a it's a it's a slower lens. That means a smaller aperture. And we know smaller aperture, more depth of field. It just kind of works that way. They tend to be a wider angle of view. We know wide angle lenses at any given aperture have more depth of field. Right. Nothing wrong with that. And when they say we're going to work in telephoto mode on a smartphone, they're not really working on telephoto mode. They're cropping. Yeah. Yeah. And we can crop too. We've been doing it for a long time. Sure. So the smartphone is just making it simple at time of image manufacture to do the things that in the old days we would do in post.
1: Yes, uh, but I think it's also taken it one, no, not one, many steps further. Okay. Because we, if... We take the time to read the instructions that come with your phone. The m- number of things that you can do with your phone are essentially not doable with a regular photo- photographic camera okay give us an example well um there's this whole low light night vision sort of image you look over a a highway and you see all the cars with the lights coming at you and you take the image and you are presented by a beautifully clear image with the lights there but not just blobs of light everything is adequately illuminated um If you look, you will find there are portrait modes in your camera. And if you choose to make a portrait where you... Uh, where the subject is smart and you have a very shallow depth of field. Uh, It's there, except that you just told us that it isn't. So this is all being manufactured after the fact. Prior to the image being written down. Yes. To some kind of file. When I say after the fact, uh, after the fact that you clicked the little red button.
0: Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's true. So you talk about uh, night photography, low light, um, Um, let's call it that fake fake bokeh. Fake bokeh. Type of portrait. Yes.
1: Um, What else? Panoramas. They've got something called deep fusion, which I have to admit I don't understand at all. Okay. Uh, You can change the Color um, the color the um, from vivid to black and white to sepia toned
0: similar to what we would have done with a preset similar back in the old to days. what
1: we would have done with the presets. so the presets presets are all being applied now okay um,
0: so I so correct me if I'm wrong I use a, I use my smartphone and I make a photograph and I say you know what this would look pretty nice in a sepia tone right the phone does that and the file it creates is sepia tone. Y-
1: Yes. Well, let me say rephrase it. One of the files that's created is a sepia tone. Okay. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, I can. Uh, and I found this out by accident. Uh, I had uh, taken some images that I said, well, let's try this um, depth of fuel thing out. And I took three or four different images and I exported them to uh, my computer to be entered into Lightroom. And I knew that They get sent over as JPEGs, because I'm very clever that way. I said, this is the JPEG. But I also saw that when I was doing this, there was a setting that said, send over the unmodified original.
0: Oh, I see.
1: And I said, oh, this is cool. This means it's not a JPEG. It's the unmodified original. and It must be close to a TIFF or a... A raw file of some variety? Well, it wasn't, because by by the time it got to my computer and I looked at the images, not one of them had the uh, effects that I had introduced. The shallow depth of field, the color manipulation, the light selection that made it from stage lighting to natural lighting... None of those things were there. And it was only when I sent over the file after the manipulation that I got my effects back. So as I'm seeing it, there must have been two files. There's one unmodified or a sidecar. Or at least one file. At least one file.
0: Because we know, for example, panoramas, that's a series of photos. Yes, the um what they call hdr it, it's actually kind of the same thing that we did before multiple exposures at different exposure values but manufactured together according to the de- what the developer wanted to achieve mm-hmm. and okay so this is cool but so far this is not well in the case of focus decision right. or the perception of depth of field mm-hmm. these kinds of effects have existed in point-and-shoot cameras for a long time okay like i know if you if, Although, go find a new point-and-shoot camera
1: these days. The
0: smartphone is pretty much... uh, I
1: think that's killed that market. Oh,
0: they're they're so dead they've decomposed. But they used to have those uh, night shot, portrait, vivid color action shot. And all they were doing is they were biasing the exposure program in that far simpler device, right. technologically compared to these smartphones, to try to do those things. But I'm getting the sense that the smartphone is doing it better, faster. If I say stronger, somebody's going to do a $6 million <laughs> man illusion. But that's not wrong. Yeah. It's an improvement in application of technology right. to create that image.
1: And it's it's also interesting that, that you mentioned the HDR because I sort of missed that in my reading out here. But HDR is something with the real cameras, we make a conscious decision to do. From my reading, I'm coming up with the fact that it's entirely possible that smartphones, every image they take is an HDR image in its own way. So they're taking multiple exposures, even though we think they're taking one. Correct. Between the time you press that button and the image comes out, there have been about, well, let's say thousands. It may be more, but there have been a a slew of effects that have been superimposed. They've probably taken a whole bunch of images. You can get high-res images, which again is basically a focus stacking that occurs right. in, in camera. So it's it's taking multiple images at different exposures, multiple images at different perceived focus, and then stacking them and giving them back to you as what you see is a very good photograph. Yeah, uh, but as one, what technologically one file, one file by the time you get it. Yes. Yeah
0: it's come out, it looks great, I'm happy, I don't need to do anything, and I don't have an issue with noise, I don't have an issue with color cast, because the programs are so well advanced that the things that we would have done before, only in post-processing, have been done before we even see the photograph for the first time. Right. So when someone thinks about this, in the context of what we'll call traditional cameras, the larger sensor, full frame, crop sensor, four thirds, whatever, what
1: have they done? well in uh, this space i think the digital full frame large sensor huge lens are still thinking largely in terms of uh, light lens optics focus i would concur the smaller mirrorless cameras, not, not smaller necessarily, but the mirrorless cameras, not having to contend with a lot of the flipping mirrors, etc., um, have introduced much of what the cell phones do, some more than others.
0: Okay, I can buy into that. Uh, only, and the only reason I can say that is because I know you're an Olympus shooter and you've told me over months, hey, I found out my camera will do this. I can. It will actually be taking photos before I'm taking photos. So I can, I can put this, I can get the right shot without having to be on the money from a timing perspective. Right. Okay, that's not something that a traditional DSLR or even a traditional mirrorless ever did. But your mirrorless does
1: that. And it could do it all the time. Yes, and and, and my mirrorless, the, the, uh, my Olympus, uh, the, the big issue with it has always been a small sensor. Uh, don't go high ISO, you'll get a lot of noise. So they incorporated all these things from the cell phone and you can get very good good images with very little noise. So those are
0: still manufactured in camera? Yes. Now, does that apply to the raw images as well?
1: Um, Yes, I think. Okay, I mean, that's... Because I can't can't shoot raw images. Um, I I know somebody was talking about, uh, they were taking a video, doing a video grab from that, to 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 get this perfect shot of the bird landing on the feeder or whatever. And then, but when I explained to him how I could use this setting on, which is actually capturing raw files, and when you pick out the one that's right, you are picking out a raw file that has been shot at 80 frames a second. Uh, yeah, it's no longer a low quality image that you're getting that uh, you can focus stack in camera. You can, uh, so
0: that's going to be way better quality than shooting video at 60 frames per second and try to pull a frame grab because those frames have already been line skipped or pixel binned or whatever.
1: Yep. I, I think so. I think so. So uh, I think the statement you made that uh, some are better than others, um, I think that's true. Okay. Uh, I don't know if Olympus is doing it as a compensation for uh, perceived noisy images, small sensors. Uh, deficiencies or whether they were just on the ball and said listen if they can do this with this with this cell phone sensor why can't we do it with us
0: well that's but that's fair that is actual innovation because the customer is happier. The customer will celebrate that, and they will buy more. Sure. I mean, I had one of the very first Micro Four Thirds mirrorless. It was wonderful. It was small. It was light. But anything above ISO 800 yep. was a noise fest. Yet I see images that I have personally shot on the OMD. I think the fives or tens or something. No, you know. I had a one for that last rodeo we went to okay. yep. a million years ago when we could go outside and photograph with people. I think that was a dm1 mark ii and those images had no noise right and it wasn't because my ISO was low because it wasn't right so um, i turned it up so i could get more depth of field and not have to chase focus points
1: so to go back to to what you said before yes uh, it seems like yeah. The traditional cameras are, are still relying on sensor size and optics, and do, but they may be falling behind in terms of what the cameras can actually do.
0: I think that it's my opinion, because I haven't shot it, but I think they're starting to catch on. When I look at what is in um, Nikon Z9 or Z9, depending where you live in the world, or Nikon, that camera has much of the capabilities that you talk about, Okay. but on a full frame professional sensor, right. you still get raw images and you can still get JPEGs out of the camera if you wish, you know, like any camera. But I think what people forget is that raw doesn't mean raw.
1: No, it it's mean, been
0: processed.
1: It means what somebody else thinks you should see. It
0: still is. Right. It's still a processed image. Yes, there's still a computer involved, and if nobody complains, successful set of algorithms. Right, and
1: and I can see that. Uh, <laughs> If those same functionality is transferred over to a larger sensor, maybe the amount of computation you have to do is less. But if you can do the other things as well, now you've got a knock your socks off kind of camera. You have
0: the potential, I think, for something that is fundamentally evolutionary.
1: Yes. It is a
0: sea change. At the real, air quotes, real camera level right. uh, that we've taken, that somebody smart took from the smartphone. Right. I mean, the beauty of a smartphone is it's a massively powerful computer mm-hmm. in a very small box. Yep. No one says you can't put that same chip into a traditional size camera. Right. Because you could, and leverage all the things that it brings to you. Right. Okay, so that's the camera. How does this change how we do our you and I are fond of digital asset management. Right. But how does that change how we retain, call, store, and think about our images if we've got all this additional functionality?
1: Well, I, I, I didn't know this at all, actually. But apparently with the new iterations of uh, Lightroom and I I, I don't know the, what the other ones are, but uh, they have built in the ability to categorize your images without you even knowing it or doing anything about it. I think uh, Apple's photos is one of them. You can actually without even know you're doing it, you can, you know, pull pull up the give me a scene that's got green trees and pink sky and chances are good it's going to it's going to do it. So we used to talk about adding keywords to your images, which I think most photographers didn't do because it was boring. But I, this this whole computational thing has removed that as a as a necessity. You it's it's recognizing the images and categorizing the images without you doing anything about it.
0: Well. I can recall back when Photoshop World was a live event, seeing Julianne Cost from Adobe, who's yes, just a great artist. Yes, sir, I just love her stuff. And she was talking at the time about technology that Adobe was building called Sensei. Yes. Adobe Sensei. And she showed us, give me pictures of green fields. Right. And it did. It went through the Lightroom catalog and it found a bunch of photographs of green fields. And there were no keywords. So I think that you're really onto something here because I know that people still think they need to keyword everything, but a keyword is only as good as what keyword you put in. Right. Like if you leave the keyword out and then you decide you need the green field and you mm. never keyworded something as green field, right. that keyword search is never going to help you. Right. But this computational work that's occurring after the photograph is made yes, could be very helpful. Like one of the things, for example, that we know that Lightroom debuted was face detection. Yes. And face detection has existed in mm. smartphones like forever. I think they do dog and cat detection now. <laughs>
1: Wouldn't surprise
0: me. And, and, and again, that's at the time of image manufacturer that may matter a whole lot less than two years later where you're looking for the photograph of joan right and you can say this is joan find me all the pictures of joan and even in lightroom and i haven't done this in three years three years ago lightroom would do a pretty good job mm-hmm. if i had a photograph of you right as we are prone to do when we're out photographing make photographs of each other i could identify one as gordon yep. and say go find me all the photos of gordon right and it would find photographs that i couldn't even remember taking Maybe the camera did it on its own.
1: Well, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's, it's kind of frightening what what it does to. Do. But, but what I'm finding surprising is that maybe I haven't looked, maybe I haven't paid enough attention, but things like Sensei, they're not making a lot of noise about it. They're not saying, come and see what our are, what are new thing of Lightroom will do. I concur that the marketing of that has been
0: really poorly done. Like, I can remember sitting in the audience where Ms. Cost was presenting this, and everybody's jaw dropping, some not happy about it. <laughs> You know, like some great sin had just been committed. But all it was was about f- making it easier to find stuff. Right. Presuming you were capturing a lot of images. But I don't read about it.
1: No, they, <sighs> they, they, they don't talk about it at all. You don't know it's there. I only found out about Sensei uh, in the process of preparing for this because that takes me to uh, the other the other aspect with the post-processing where they talked about um, Lightroom has that, In the develop module, it's got an auto setting for your basic adjustments. Well, you click on that button and you suddenly get a very nice looking image. May not be exactly what you wanted, but it's very nice. And this is where they mentioned that the Adobe is now, every time you do that, the images that you're looking at reference back to Sensei, whatever is involved with Sensei, which I don't know, and make adjustments using adobe's algorithm on how this should this image should look
0: well and and that's true and i think it's sad that we don't we as customers of these products don't all know this but i i can tell you for sure you know i think i i forget where and when it was but i think we recognize that scott kelby is probably one of the best known educators in lightroom and photoshop out there and i know in scott's most recent lightroom program his first thing is try auto (laughs) it might be all you want well, frequently it is. Yeah. I just want a nice photograph of my family on the beach. Right. I don't want to spend six days in here removing grains of sand from Johnny's face.
1: Right. That would not there. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: because that's real, but it's not real. That's right. Because the computation has made it better.
1: Well, and we don't think about it as computation, but again, in in your post-processing, one of the common things that you do in a a portrait is you take out blemishes, not necessarily characteristics of a person, but, you know, if if they've got a zit coming up on the bridge of their nose, by all means, get rid of it. Well, if you got rid of it, something replaced that with something that was normal. Oh, not a zit. Not is it perceived normal, and so we've been doing this for years, except we don't know we've been doing this for years,
0: or we've been using the healing brush and yeah all, all, selecting all and doing all that stuff, but now these tools could make a
1: value are making basically a value judgment that says, "See is it, remove it, yep, um I think I'd mentioned uh, some of the some of the software, and uh, I think one of the programs i read about is something called optics i believe yes you didn't make note of that and apparently this this program uh, will look at you go to a hockey game you come back with three thousand photographs it'll first flag everything that's out of focus and then it'll take everything that they think is the subject and if that looks maybe a little bit more blurred um, it'll mark it not necessarily remove it but it will tell you well hey guys take a look here these, I think this is not great. You might want to take a look at it and see if that's what you want to do or not.
0: So if I think back to when I was doing sports photography and I would come back from a football game with 1,800 images, right. most of them not blurry okay. because I practiced my craft. Right. But I wasn't going to use 1,800 images. I needed 40 because right. that's all anybody can stand. Yeah, absolutely. And so something, tools like this could be helpful. I mean, it could... I haven't tried it, never even heard of it till today. But that could replace a lot of my culling process in Photo Mechanic, mm-hmm. which I have to do before I even import. Because mm-hmm. I don't want my catalog to be filled with dreck. Right. Or like go to an air show and come back with 3,000 pictures of a gray <laughs> speck in the sky. <laughs>
1: yeah, we've done that. Certainly have.
0: So that deal, that helps us understand where this can help in asset management. But I'm thinking, because you brought it up, we hear a lot You know, Skylum software just released Neo or Luminar Neo, or I think it's called Luminar Neo. And one of the big deals that they make about it is that their object selection for replacement is really new age. And certainly even from Adobe, sky replacement used to be, eh, now it's really, really good. Yeah. And that has to be done not by masking and painting. And for a lot of folks, they love it. You know, and it's not restricted to, you know the the mass pantheon of the 12 skies that get included
1: <laughs> yes yeah, it it is very impressive but when, when you presented all this, uh, the stuff about the new masking techniques uh, that they've introduced into into lightroom and i went home and i tried them I, it it just blew me away and i said you know for the, for this thing i'd be sitting here for 20 minutes 30 minutes trying to get this looking right, making a selection that I can just darken the sky without having fringy things all over the place. It's, it's a one-click <laughs> process. So if we talk about these things now as being... I, th- I think we had a resistance to using things called presets because they were somebody else's impression of what your image should be. But these but aren't it, presets. These are not presets. They're we, not static gone.
0: implementations.
1: That's correct. We have gone way beyond that stage now. I mean,
0: and part of this is I
1: think back to years ago
0: when I needed to do for clients to expand a very small photograph so they could make a big print. Right. You know, when the original was fairly small. And back at that time, the company that is now On1, I honestly don't remember what they were called back then, they had a product called Genuine Fractals. Okay. If ever a product had a name that was marketing obtuse, that's the one. <laughs> But it was absolutely brilliant because it used fractal mathematics, which is an absolutely fascinating subject for those so inclined, to scale up without loss of quality. Right. And if you want to learn more, there was a guy who worked for IBM named Benoit Mandelbrot back in the 60s who did a ton of work documenting how fractals work. Basically, they are infinitely scalable up and down. Right. Uh, Sorry, rat hole. (laughs) Uh, But it's fascinating because... That tool did an amazing job. But now I think about that in the context of, okay, how do I replace the sky where the thing in front of it is a leafless tree with eight zillion branches? Right. There's no way I can mask that manually without losing my mind. Right. But I can literally say, select sky. Yep. Drop in the new sky. And it works. And it works to your point without all the artifacting right. that we would have seen in the past. So right. that's a significant change and implication of this, let's let's call it this enhanced technological tool right. that is computationally massive. Right. Done after the fact. Yep. So not just in camera and not just in the dam, but also at the time of process. Mm-hmm.
1: And to uh, address the issue that you just said of taking a low-res image and making it into a very reproducible, large, high-res image, this is a one-click process now. Yeah. I think uh, Adobe has got the... Forget what they call it—the super, super, super high resolution. Super high resolution or something. It's it. Yeah, you put your cursor on something and you click it, and you your image goes from blah to ooh, and.
0: Uh, it certainly appears to become a lot sharper without the artifacts of traditional sharpening. Right. In that context, what does that mean for—and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense—for the purest photographer? Do the how do these people? learn to embrace these tools, decide where and when to use the tools if they so wish, because they don't have to, you know, in the smartphone, you don't get a lot of choice. Right. But in your, let's use the example of the new company that is, that was Olympus, they just dropped a new camera, a a pro grade camera Mm -hmm. that does absolutely incredible stuff. You know, if someone were to have a windfall, they should probably buy one. (laughs) (laughs) You never know what could happen, right? The camera manufacturers have to embrace this. That company has done so. Nikon, I think, is doing it in their latest mirrorless range. Right. We've heard that Canon is no longer doing DSLRs. Yep. That that is over. And they're focusing only on mirrorless. But I knew that Olympus was getting there. And I know Panasonic just did a new release. And that camera looks awesome. Yes. Like seriously awesome. Plus the benefit of being smaller, lighter, you know, greater reach with the lenses, all the all the good all news the about yeah. micro four thirds.
1: So to go back uh, to uh, the point that you raised, where do the real photographers? How does this impact them? I, I don't. I don't know how you answer that. I, I think they they still, if they have this desire to, I can control this, and I can I can do this better, or or whatever their reasoning is in the pro- in the process. Sure. You don't have to use any of this. No. But the first time you tell the thing, select the subject, and it comes up perfectly selected, and you've got a pre-made mask for you to do with as you wish, i got a feeling you're, you've converted a three-day job to a 20-minute job. And you're, If you're a
0: working photographer, time's
1: money. Right. And, uh, and the possibility that you will drop your bar in a big hurry yeah. uh, exists. It could. And but probably I think this, you've been this, using all this stuff anyway. You just thought you were doing it yourself.
0: Well, and we know that there have been these plugins for years. There's one... That I will not name. That basically turns real people photographs into perfect mannequins. (laughs) The skin goes plastic. The eyes are all the same size and brighter. The teeth get white and straight. You know, the jawline gets narrowed. I absolutely hate that stuff Mm -hmm. because it's, it doesn't look real. Right. But some of these other tools, it may not be real, but it looks real. Right. And to the casual viewer, looks real is good enough. And pleasing, mm-hmm. and I'm happy. That's great. Thanks very much. You know, you okay. You won't be able to charge for 12 hours of editing,
1: but that's not all about <laughs> <laughs> that's bad. not a whole lot of money. And uh, uh, the other way I look at a lot of this stuff is. As photographers or creatives, we are saying, well, I I can do this by myself and I I can do this so much better. It's going to take me three or four hours to do this. But you'll go outside and you'll get into your new super duper souped up uh, SUV with the six million things that will pretty much drive itself from here to wherever you want it to go. And you don't really think twice about that. You just say, oh, this is nice. I'm going to use this.
0: So where's the next group of innovation or the next bit of innovation in this space going to
1: come from? You know, that 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 is a scary thought. And <laughs> I have no idea where to go with that because five years ago, we would not have thought any of this stuff that is being done automatically it would have been feasible to do. And now we're doing it all without thinking about it. Makes me frightened a little bit. It it, it does. It, it, It is frightening.
0: Well, one of the things that Steve Jobs once said, probably said many times, was the customer doesn't know what he or she wants. It's our job to give it to them. Right, and to show them, and you know, sometimes I listen to that and I go, I'm not comfortable with this. Yeah, I've got an iPhone, yep. which basically is doing exactly what he said. Yep. Then, and I look at that new uh, Olympus, the the OM product. I may not have realized that's actually what I do want. <laughs>
1: And and, that's, and that is what was really scary about Steve Jobs, is that he looked at things while IBM was still talking about joysticks and mouse and little tum-tacky thingies that you pushed around. He said, I don't need all this. I need two fingers and a swipe. Yeah. And my three-year-old is sitting with an iPad and saying, give that to me, Grandma, I can fix it.
0: The challenge is I don't think the mega companies are, have
1: that vision.
0: And whether you like jobs or not, the guy had vision. Mm -hmm. He was out there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it feels like the mega companies move really slowly because they have shareholders to please and they've got market share and they don't want to offend anybody. My take is that it's going to be the small guys, small, innovative people, young people who've got a cool idea and they just go do it.
1: Yes, and if I was reading your article earlier this morning, yes, they're the ones who will see it. They're the ones who are not restrained by the mega Muhammad um, companies. They will do it. But once the companies realize, wait a minute, this is something we can make money on or this is something that's going to sell, they will go for it. Yes. Yeah. And they will catch up.
0: Oh, they will catch up. and they And there's always the chance of... If you if you wait too long to sell,
1: you get steamrolled. Yes, but but by then it it has become it's gone from innovation to mainstream, right? And you're just selling more of what you did before and saying, look how good we are. So hopefully they've innovated. The one thing I, I, I am afraid of in all of this is what happens in the event that we lose the ability to do these things, that we get accustomed to these? Does it? I don't know.
0: Well, I can see a, a dystopian Netflix movie of that. Yeah. Because that's what they do. Yep, they make dystopian movies. They do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think I, I think that some of this stuff is so ubiquitous that it's not possible to lose it. It's everywhere. It is, and I don't think it's like a virus. I think it's very hard to remove it or kill it.
1: But there are cataclysms. There are, and uh, a- and there that. are
0: there are also human. But paws. most
1: cat- most cataclysms are human mediators.
0: <laughs> well, okay, so fair enough. So then, if you did have a powerful state that said this is a sin, right? You cannot do this, and they brought the weight of their whatever their guns. Um, yeah, it could shut down, but then we have that American actress with the horrible British accent <laughs> doing the sand through your fingers thing. Right. Thanks, Gordon. I think this has re- been—I think it's been a cool conversation. I enjoyed it. I think it's—I uh, think there is a potential for it to be informative and and even you know for long-term serious photographers, eye open. I hope it's happening. You can choose to use it or not. That's fair, but yeah. it's keep it's happening. And God, I would hate to spend $4,000 on a camera to use it like it was 1922. Right. Because you don't have to. Thanks, partner. Welcome. Enjoyed it. For the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I've been Ross.
1: And I'm Gordon. And we will be back with you next time.